I'm Kenny. I'm one of our elders uh, at Grace Fullerton. If you would turn in your Bibles uh, to 1 Peter, um, just so you know, any week that you come, if you don't own a Bible or you forgot one, we've got copies uh, right here in the back, and uh, it would not be odd at all if you wanted to get up and go grab one and bring one back. You could even keep it uh, if you don't have a Bible. We would love for you to be looking at what we're, we're studying together uh, with your own eyes and your own pens. Uh, but today is the last Sunday uh, in this series. We started uh, just after the new year uh, in this letter, First Peter, written by the same Peter who was one of the 12 disciples who followed uh, and ministered alongside Jesus for three years and was a witness to his, his death and his resurrection. Um, and he wrote this letter to Christians in an early church that were beginning to feel um, uh, in significant ways that they were, uh, this world is not their home uh, as is the case for us. This world is not our eternal home, and this world uh, does not look like the kingdom of our Lord and of uh, Christ. And the same was true for them. He wrote this letter to them to encourage them. And uh, uh, next week is going to be our reflection service. So just a, a pause and a, a commercial for that. But our reflection services are what we do from time to time uh, so that we don't just move on to the next thing when we've preached through a book of the Bible or a series, uh, but we want to hear from one another um, Romans 12 says that uh, we're not to be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed, how? By the renewing of our minds. And primarily the way our minds are renewed is we read God's word and the spirit brings understanding and conviction and faith and obedience and submission through that and we grow. Um, it's not all that complicated. Sometimes we struggle to do that. But our hope is that, and prayer from week to week, is that God is renewing our minds and bringing about transformation in ways that we could actually talk about, we could give thanks to. You know, Paul oftentimes in his letters would say things like, we give thanks every time we hear word back about your faith that's growing and your love is increasing for one another. And well, how does he know about this? Well, stories are told and, and people testify to the, the ongoing work that God's word is, is renewing our minds. And we're encouraged when we hear these sorts of testimony from one another. And so that's what we'll do in each of our two services. Uh, so I want to remind you this week uh, to, to try to t find some time to think back. Maybe if you're one of those people that you, if you go like this with your Bible, all your old bulletins fall out. Go back and look through some of the notes you've taken or reread 1 Peter this week uh, and spend some time praying through it and, and reflecting back on how has this book left an imprint on the way, the lens through which you see your life and the way you're approaching life and the view that you have of God uh, and, and your Lord Jesus and your future and eternity? I mean, Peter's been speaking to very practical things like um, in our trials and sufferings that God has purposes in these things to, to refine our faith and make us more like Jesus and to use suffering as a means and opportunity for gospel witness. Um, it's, it's been calling us to follow our suffering Savior, Jesus, first confident that because he suffered, uh, like we've sung in many of these songs, uh, we can't be shaken and he'll hold us fast, um, but also that we can follow in his footsteps and he'll give us the, the strength and faith to do that. It's called us to all sorts of things, of, um, of to be peacemakers and humbly submitting in relationships in our life and toward modesty and valuing a character like God does over external. Um, it's called us to lay down our inclinations toward revenge, but instead pray that the heart of Christ would be our heart toward people and on and on. 
So we want to hear these sorts of stories next week. So would you commit to doing a little homework and prayer and, and come? Maybe you never shared that sort of thing and, and, uh, and you feel like you're the last person to grab a mic. But we would still love to hear. And maybe the Lord's going to put something on your heart to share with us next week. So that's my pitch. All right, so the end of chapter five in First Peter, we actually technically started our series uh, week one at the very end of Peter, Eric Twistleman preached, and he started with the last few verses of First Peter, uh, one verse in particular, I want us to read it again, chapter five, verse 12. This is one of those books, and this doesn't always happen in a book of the Bible, but in Peter's letter here, he comes to the very end and he flat out says, I wanna make sure you know why I wrote this letter. I don't want you to miss the whole purpose, and here it is. He says, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. This and it is what Peter wants to make sure you don't leave this letter uh, uh, having missed. Um, And when he says this is the true grace of God, he has something particular in mind. He's not just thinking broadly about all of the grace of God, but he's saying, Christian, the things that I've been talking about here in this letter contrary to um, appearances, are actually the grace of God, and we want you to stand firm in it. Um, When he says you're standing in the grace of God, another way he could say that and has said it through this letter is you are standing in the place of God's blessing. God is blessing you in ways that I've been talking about here in this letter, and I want you to know it, and I want you to stand firm in it. And so this got me thinking about how we think of blessing and being blessed. And if you use social media, hashtag blessed is one of the most ubiquitous hashtags in Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, Um, especially Instagram. I went a week ago, looked on Instagram because you can see how many people have used that tag on a photo. And uh, as of last Thursday, almost 55 billion pictures, (laughs) hashtag blessed. And so I clicked on it. I just started scrolling through the recent feed of hashtag blessed pictures. And it's what you would imagine. All, like 99% were all the sweetest things about life, right? Um, so newborn babies and wedding pictures and wedding rings uh, and uh, uh, a lot of vacation pictures and views from balconies and bare feet in the sand. Um, lots of latte art is, is blessed and, <laughs> and cronuts. Donuts this last week, hashtag blessed. It was National Donut Day. I'm looking at you, Justin. You were were blessed on that day. Um, A dozen fold, were you? Um, But all these these just delicious and and wonderful, sweet things about life, hashtag blessed. And on Twitter, the same sorts of things, usually good news announcements. I got that job. I got that scholarship. Um, The baby's here. I'm getting married, um, et cetera. Hashtag blessed. Now, I don't want to discredit or disparage any of those things. We should say a blessing on all all of those things, even cronuts, right? Every good thing that we enjoy is an undeserved grace of God. It's a good thing that we ought to give him thanks for, even in, in little insignificant things. But I think you see where I'm getting with this is we predominantly tend to think of those sorts of things when we think blessed in this moment, in this experience. But Peter in this letter has been hashtag blessed, stamping that hashtag on things that we don't tend to call blessing. So by way of review, I want us to look at what Peter's been tweeting throughout First Peter. This is it right here. You can go follow him today. But these all come right out of the letter that we've just been in for the last four months. This is the thing. These are the things that Peter keeps saying, you know what? You're blessed when these things uh, are in your life. So number one, when you're grieved by various trials to test the genuineness of your faith, blessed. 
when mindful of God, you endure sorrow while suffering unjustly. Hashtag blessed. When you do good and then you suffer for it and endure, so you keep doing that good even though you suffered for it and you might suffer for it again, hashtag blessed. You are standing in the grace of God, Christian. When you refuse to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but instead of just not saying something evil back when someone says something evil, you actually return it with a blessing. Can you imagine that, Jack Rosencrantz? Someone's saying something evil to you and you instead saying something kind back to them? Peter says, blessed. He says, when you're zealous for what's good, but you suffer for righteousness sake, blessed. When you're slandered and you're reviled, that means you're hated and thought poorly of for your good behavior in Christ, hashtag blessed. One last one, or two, when you share in Christ's sufferings, when you actually are treated in ways that are similar to the way our Lord Jesus was treated, you're blessed, like when you're insulted even for the name of Christ, hashtag blessed. Peter has been saying, Christian, this is the true grace of God, actually, and I want you to stand firm in it. I don't want these things, he's saying, to lead you to abandon Christ or to, uh, to conclude somehow God must not be gracious or I'm not standing in his grace. You're in it. I want you to stand in it. So what will help us stand firm? What, do, what does he go out in this letter saying, this is how you will stand firm in the true grace of God? I think he answers that question in at least four ways in our last paragraph. And there, here's the outline up front. Uh, we'll get to all of these. Number one, know your enemy. If you're gonna stand firm, you need to know your enemy. Secondly, you need to know your God, even more importantly. Third, know your company. Know who you're in it with, um, that you're not alone uh, in this life. And number four, know your reward. Know the end, again, keep that in sight. I'm going to spend most of our time on the first couple and a little bit on the last two. But let me read our verses, pray that God would help us not miss this, and then work our way through it. 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself, I love that word, he will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. We pray. Uh, Lord, these things that Peter wants us to know, uh, all of them in one way or another are unseen to us, at least to our eyes. Uh, Lord, Peter's talking about an enemy that we don't see with our eyes. Uh, we see his work in the world. We see things that he is behind uh, and exploiting, but we can't see him with our eyes. And you want us to know he's there. 
and we can't see you, God, with our eyes. Even Jesus, who took on flesh, he is at your right hand right now. And until he comes again, we see him by faith through your word. And we see you and your character through your word and your promises. Help us to see you clearly that way. Um, and Lord, we can't see all our brothers and sisters right now with our eyes around the world who are fighting the same fight up against the same enemy, even um, uh, undergoing things that are, are more dangerous and more terrifying than what we face day to day. But Lord, I pray we'd be encouraged as we remember them and that you are upholding them just as you promised to uphold us. Uh, and Lord, uh, for our reward, Peter has not let us uh, lose sight of this throughout the entire letter that uh, in just a little while, uh, Jesus, you're gonna make all things new. And Lord, I pray you'd help us if we're not seeing that again this morning, that you'd get that back in, into sight for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That kind of sounded like a closing prayer. So, but anyway, that, <laughs> that's what I want God to do uh, for us in this passage. So let's start with your enemy. What he says about your enemy. Know your enemy. I'm going to jump ahead of verse 6 and 7 for a minute, and we'll come back. But number 8 and 9, these verses, he's saying, I want you to know that you have an enemy. You have a personal adversary. If I told you that I knew right now there was a person who every day got up and thought about consciously, I want to hurt you and take you down, and they're looking for opportunity, would that terrify you? I mean, it should, right? Would you, would you live differently? Peter is saying you have a personal adversary, namely the devil. Up until this point in the letter, all the adversaries Peter's been talking about have been seen adversaries, right? So people who might insult you for the sake of Christ or um, masters you might work for who might treat you unfairly or emperors who might rule unjustly uh, or um, unbelievers who might uh, ridicule you for what you believe. So these, these seen human enemies. And he's also talked about that we ourselves, because of our sin nature, we are our own enemy. Remember he said... Uh, Christians, abstain uh, or from the passions of your flesh because they wage war against your soul. So that's an adversary language. Our own <laughs> sinful desires can continue to wage war against our soul and tempt us to leave Christ and, and, and do what we want to do um, and what God says we shouldn't do. Um, but here he sort of pulls back the curtain in the end and he says, all those unseen enemies behind and, and under and exploiting those enemies, uh, we have a personal enemy in the spiritual realm. I don't want to assume that we all just believe that wholeheartedly. We live in a culture that, that by and large wants to say that all we can really believe in is what we can touch and see with our eyes and test in a lab and a beaker. But the Christian faith is supernatural. God himself is spirit, right? Can't see with his eyes. And he has always existed. And he brought this material universe into existence, but he brought other things into existence. Spiritual beings in a spiritual realm, angels, and we don't have all the details that we're curious to know, but the Bible says that some of those beings um, have rebelled against him. One in particular, namely, Satan, the one that Peter's referring to. But he's not alone. There's many. The Bible says they are actively opposing God. They hate God, and we are collateral damage. And because Satan hates God, he hates the people God's made in his image who have sinned and need a way back and a redeemer and God is working to redeem and Satan is fighting to foil God's attempts and we are caught in the middle. So we have a personal unseen enemy. That's scary. 
Peter doesn't want us to underestimate him. You know, Peter had heard Jesus say, he has this aim, Satan, to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what your enemy wants. Peter says a couple of things that we need to know. Number one is our, our enemy's powerful and he's cunning. He's powerful and cunning. That's why he uses a lion. That's why he doesn't say, your adversary the devil prowls like a meerkat. Is a meerkat powerful or scary? Would you be scared if a meerkat was in here right now staring you down? No, me neither. Um, he says a lion, right? A predator with claws and teeth, a carnivore, right? Who stalks and stealthy and, and takes down that weak one in the herd, you know? He says, Satan is like this. This is how he's, he's prowling about seeking someone to devour. And Peter says what he wants to devour is your faith. He doesn't just want to make your life hard and he doesn't just want to kill you. He actually wants something bigger than that because this war is ultimately against God. He wants to devour your faith. Look at in verse nine. I say that because when he says, resist him, your enemy, the next thing he says is firm in your faith. So what does your enemy want to take down? Your faith, your, your trust in God, your admiration and your adoration for God, your estimation that God is great, he's good, he is kind, he's loving, he's holy, um, he is worthy of my praise and my obedience. Satan wants to devour that. He wants to change your mind and, and snuff that out. And he does it in different ways. So the way that Peter has primarily had in mind uh, has been through fear and hostility and intimidation and persecution, right? I'm gonna snuff faith out with terror that was increasing for this early church. And two Sundays ago, we, we talked about this as we thought about the persecuted church around the world and Dave preached in the morning. And in the evening, we had this prayer meeting here that some of you came to. Um, and... Satan roars, uses um, uh, you know, governments and, and other religions and, and, and people groups, worldviews to, to scare faith out of believers. That's one tactic. Uh, but the devil uses other tactics, um, doesn't he? That's not the only way Satan can devour faith. In fact, for us, maybe here in Fullerton, um, in the United States, um, maybe uh, the primary way that Satan is seeking to devour faith is more covert, like through comfort and diversion and entertainment um, and, and a list of all these wonderful hashtag blessings that are so good and we're so surrounded by that they just sort of clog our heart and turn into idols. He's just as happy to devour your faith by leading you to conclude that God is just sort of peripheral or irrelevant or a nice little addition onto the other things of my life. He's just as happy to lead you to, to have no faith that way as he is to terrify it out of you with the sword. So two Sunday nights ago is Lily Mae, my daughter and I were in one of the little media rooms where if you weren't there, what they did at the beginning was we went to these different rooms and heard some video testimonies from, from believers in some different countries that are facing serious persecution that we might then come back in here and pray with a bit more awareness. And one of those rooms was a story of this woman named Helen in Eritrea. 
And the, the part of the story they told was she was in prison and guards had taken away every strip of, of scripture that they, they had with them physically hidden with them. And she had no more, but she kept talking about the Bible with inmates. And they said, do you have more scripture? And she said, no, just in here. And they said, well, we're gonna have to beat it out of there. So they took her to a courtyard and, and they beat her with clubs. And in the midst of this, she says to these guards, uh, I don't hate you. And uh, as I'm thinking about this and talking about this after the video with the, the people in our, that Fords were in our group, this was my, my, sort of my, my flow of thought. First, I was thinking, uh, Satan is behind that right there. Satan's behind, in fact, she acknowledged it. She said to them, I don't hate you because you're just acting on orders. She says, but I have my orders. They come from my Lord Jesus. So I'm thinking, okay, behind these human enemies, there's a spiritual enemy, Satan, and he wants to snuff out that woman's faith uh, with fear. And I thought, thank you, God, that I don't live in a dangerous place like that. I'm sitting here with my 10-year-old daughter. But as we started talking about it, I, my next thought was, you know, if I think or assume that because I don't face anything like that sort of um, fearful, violent, outward persecution, that I'm somehow safe from my enemy, the devil, then I'm fooling myself. Because the same fury that's so obvious behind persecution like that, it's the same fury that's fueling Satan to want to devour faith with, with simple little trivial comforts of life. And so Peter doesn't want us to under, underestimate our enemy. He wants us to be sober and watchful like we're going to see in just a second. On the other hand, we shouldn't overestimate him. Satan is not equal to God. They are not like equal rival, you know, good and evil forces. Uh, he has nothing uh, compared to God. He has nothing that God has not first given him. So any authority Satan has is also under the mighty hand of God, isn't it? He's not omniscient. No Satan or no demon is omniscient and knows everything like God. Not all powerful like God. Not everywhere like God. Um, like the, the hymn we sang is true, the prince of darkness, grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. Why? Well, his doom is sure, and one little word shall fell him. One little word. Think about this. Peter, who's, who, who's, who's writing this, had seen that man who lived out among the tombs and was possessed by a legion of demons, and no one could restrain him and do anything about him. And this man encountered Jesus, and this legion of demons say to Jesus in fear, please don't obliterate us. Would you just send us out of this man into those pigs? And with a word, Jesus says, all right. And they go, and this man's in his right mind at Jesus' feet saying, can I come with you? So as powerful as our enemy is, Peter's saying, also wants us to realize he is not all powerful. In fact, um, next to God, um, one little word will fell him. What's more, Peter would want us to know that if you are in Christ, that this enemy um, ultimately holds no power over you, that his greatest weapon uh, has been stripped of him. And that is his power to accuse you for your sin um, and, and condemn you uh, truthfully, um, to say to you, you can't stand before God. If I take your life, um, that's it for you. You're apart from God forever. But in 1 Peter 3.18, it says, Jesus suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. To bring us to God so that when we die, death is gain. Death is not hell. 
In Colossians 2, Paul says that when Jesus died in our place and canceled the record of debt that stood against us, what also happened when he did that is that he disarmed the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Every time I read that verse, I picture the Westerns where they shoot the gun out of the bad guy's hand, you know, like that. But he says, when Christ died in your place for your sin, he shot the weapon out of your accuser's hand. So when we sing the, sing the song, when, um, uh, when Satan charges me with guilt, is that one of the songs you just sang? Help me out. Yeah, or no, when all my sins accuse me, Satan charges me with guilt, um, your grace will not refuse me. We can actually say, no, actually, um, death is powerless against me. There is no fear in death anymore because of what Christ has done. Because we were all enemies of God. We don't just have an adversary. We were born adversaries of God. Because of our own sin, our own bent heart away from God that since Adam all have been born with, but God in his mercy demonstrated his love for his enemies and while we were yet sinners, he died for us. And Satan knows this and he hates this. He does not want us to know this or trust this or, or stand firm in the faith of that. But if God is for you, then really even Satan can't be ultimately against you. Peter would want us to know. But Peter's focus here has been more on the don't underestimate him side. So look at the two things he says. In light of knowing this about our enemy, he says first, uh, verse eight, be sober-minded and watchful. Uh, I came across this YouTube video a couple of weeks ago. I'm studying this passage, thinking about Satan prowling like a roaring lion. And I come across this YouTube uh, video that makes me pause. It's from this place called BigCatsRescue.org. And they have this shelter where they, they find and rehabilitate uh, you know, tigers and lions and cheetahs and these big cats that have been saved from terrible circuses and zoos and things. And they feed them and get them healthy again. And he trains them and he has a good relationship with them where he can walk into their cage and pet them and, and interact with them. But he made this video, this two-minute video, where one by one he just went and sat right outside the enclosure of all these cats that trusted him, right? And he sat down in this one, he just pretends like he's tying his shoe. And as soon as his head goes down and he's looking at his shoe, that tiger right there, his head comes back up and he gets down and he just starts slinking along the thing behind bushes and comes up to the fence and just lunges at the fence. And he turns around and looks and then it kind of backs off. And it just goes through every single cat, every single one. And the name of his video is Never Turn Your Back on Big Cats. <laughs> it's the PSA you never thought needed to be made. Never, but I, I saw it and I thought, that's exactly what Peter's saying when he says, be watchful. You have a powerful, cunning enemy that wants to devour you, so don't turn your back on him. The Bible says things like this, that we can give opportunity to the devil. We can actually open the door and, and give circumstances and situations that Satan and demons can exploit. Already there, um, like for one, for example, with anger. The Bible says that when we in our anger or bitterness towards someone, rather than working to move toward them and, and make peace and forgive, we harbor that anger in our heart and we don't deal with it. Um, we let the sun go down on it. We actually give an opportunity to the devil. We, we create a situation in which our enemy can come in and exploit that. I can use that anger. I can throw some fuel on that and, and increase that, and I, I can ratchet that up a notch. We do this with all sorts of things. I think a lot of the, the, the opportunities that we tend to give Satan in our life can be things that we actually 
sort of fiercely guard and self-justify, well, no, no, but this thing's not all that bad, and well, I can con control it, and I have self-control. And some of those things, we gotta be honest and say, you know, actually, that's an opportunity that I give the devil every day. And we need to think about this and pray and be wise and even willing, like Jesus, pretty seriously one time said, listen, you know what, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. I mean, that's, that's hyperbole, but he's, he really means sin is so serious and what Satan wants to do with sin and where he wants that sin to lead you is so serious that whatever it takes to cut off opportunity for that, do it. So he says, be watchful, don't turn your back and don't be spiritually lazy or uh, uh, anesthetized or... Uh, uh, drunk, but sober uh, because you have this enemy. And secondly, he says, uh, resist him, verse nine. Resist him. Um, and he means actively resist him, fight back. Um, don't just be on the defense and, and sort of ready to, to, to defend yourself you know, when he attacks, but actually fight back, resist him firm in your faith. Firm in your faith is an active step in resisting your enemy. It's the best defense is a good offense. Well, how do we resist him? Well, he says, what will keep your faith firm? Know your God. Better promises. Um, true and trustworthy words of God. Where faith is firm, Satan actually is powerless, right? It's where faith is shaky and uncertain um, that, that, that Satan really has the upper hand you know, Peter in, in Ephesians 6, when he's saying, put on the full armor of God, the, the, the piece that he says, you know, you know what acts like a, a shield to extinguish the flaming lies and lures of the evil one? The shield of faith, right? Faith is what extinguishes that. And so actively pursue those things which cultivate faith. In James uh, 4, James says something really similar about resisting the devil. And I want you to hear what he sandwiches in in between. Listen from James 4, 7, and 8. He says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Then he says, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. And then he says again, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So what does it primarily look like resisting the devil? It means drawing near to God. Not so much fighting back because we're spiritually strong against our enemy, but it is retreating back under the protection and the, and the trustworthiness and the promises of our God, submitting ourselves to him and drawing near to him. That's how we resist the devil. You can picture, can you picture it? Here's my enemy right here. And I, re, I, I draw back up near to God. That's why the devil flees from me, right? He's looking at the, the, his enemy that I'm backing up on the side of, right? Submit yourselves, draw near to God, and he will flee for you, from you. Firm in your faith is how we resist. Two things that we do in the day-to-day in the, uh, -day rhythm and week, weekly rhythms of the Christian life that are waging war against our enemy, one of them is what we're doing right here. Corporate worship. Singing is war. You ever think about that? Think about how many times in the Psalms they don't just tell us to sing, they say shout. We don't shout at church very often. We should shout in worship more than we do. There's something um, powerful and, uh, and, and resisting the devil in, in our worship and us singing with one voice things like, I have a shelter in the storm when all my sins accuse me. 
Or a mighty fortress is our God. He's a bulwark never failing. Mike Cosper, who's a pastor at Sojourn Church in, uh, in Kentucky, wrote a book called Rhythms of Grace about the weekly rhythm of corporate worship in the church. And I love this. He says, worship is always a war. The declaration that there's one God and his name is Jesus and that he's died and risen and will come again is an all-out assault on the other saviors extended at every level of culture around us. Worship isn't merely a yes to the God who saves, but it's also, at the same time, a resounding furious no to the lies that echo in the mountains around us. One way we resist lies of Satan is by shouting truths of God and exalting the person of Christ. That's what we do when we're, we're not just singing songs as a nice buffer to warm our hearts up for the word being open. We're waging war when we sing together. Think about the armies of Israel walking around the city of Jericho seven times and singing and worshiping and shouting. There's something there, right? (laughs) Worship is war and prayer is also resistance and war. Peter wouldn't have forgotten this. I'm so glad that that the gospel of Mark for many of us is is in our recent memory because right near the end of the gospel of Mark, uh, Peter has this Gethsemane moment where he learns this lesson about how prayer um, and resisting our enemy work together, right? The night Jesus was going to be betrayed, he pulls Peter aside and he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. The image is, Peter, in what's about to happen right now, these events and the arrest and and, and me going to the cross and you being with me, what Satan wants to do in that is just like crushing a millstone over heads of wheat, hoping that at the end of that, when they throw it up in the air, it'll all blow away as chaff and there's no faith left. He wants to sift you, Peter. And so then they get to the garden and he says, so you watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And you remember what happens? Jesus goes over here and falls on his face and prays for hours with sweat and tears um, to the Father to uphold him so that he might do the Father's will. And they go over here and they fall asleep three times and they really fail to pray. And the next day happens and Satan pounces and what happens? Jesus goes to the cross. He sets his face. This is a done deal. And all the disciples, including Peter, scatter. No doubt Peter has this, in mind, this sort of thing in mind when he says, Christians, you be sober and watchful. Resist him, firm in your faith. You pray, watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. And remember what happened with Jesus. God will help. He will answer. He will uphold your faith. So resist, know your enemy. Resist him by knowing your God. Number two, three things about our God that Peter wants us to know. Number one, in Christ, Christian, you are under God's mighty hand. And not under his mighty hand, like under his thumb, so you humble yourself because you're under it. No, it's the picture like in, in the Psalms, right? Of You dwell within the shelter of his wings. You are, you are under his mighty hand. Um, in the Old Testament, usually when it talks about God's mighty hand, not just almighty God, but his mighty hand is usually when it's describing God showing up in force to rescue his people out of the mouths of danger and enemies and bring them into a place of safety, like in the Exodus, right? God showed his mighty hand when he turned the heart of Pharaoh and he played uncle with Pharaoh and Pharaoh finally gave and said, uncle, and let his people go. And he opens up the Red Sea and leads his people across with his mighty hand. And Peter says, humble yourself, Christian, under the mighty hand of God. You are under his mighty hand, all of his power and might that that none can 
stay his hand and none can say to him, what have you done? And he will accomplish all of his purposes. Now, all that power is for you in Christ. And not only is God's hand mighty that you're under, but it's compassionate. Look what he says. He says, how do you humble yourself? You cast your cares on him because he cares for you. Such a personal and and it's an intimate way of saying that God is gracious and loving. That's true, but he's not just gracious and loving in a general, vague, oozing sense, but he is in a personal, intimate, the, the, the creator, your creator cares about you. Your cares, those things that stress you out and worry you and cause you to live in fear, he cares that you live in fear about that and he doesn't want you to. He wants you to cast those cares on him. He cares about you. So the mighty God cares about you. And third, in Christ, you're also under his wise hand. Look at that little word proper in verse six. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Think about what that means. He's saying, so Christian, hang in there, persevere, trust, cast your cares on him, hang on. I know it's hard, he says, but at the proper time, God's gonna exalt you. At the right time, at the best time, that's what he means. At the time God deems best, he will exalt you. And not a minute before or a minute too late. At the proper time, God will exalt you. That is Peter reminding you the, the hand of God under, which you, under, under whose hand you live. That grammar just went terrible. But you know what I mean. There's wisdom there. Wisdom combines his power and his goodness and his knowledge. God knows everything. He knows what is best for you ultimately, and he knows the best way of bringing that about. And he's able to because he's all-powerful, and he's willing to because he's gracious and compassionate. And when you pack all that together, that means you can trust in a wise God. And what should we do then? Knowing that God is, uh, is mighty and compassionate and wise, he says, humble yourselves by casting your cares on him casting your anxieties on him. Uh, do you, you know that worry is, is pride? We feel like uh, pride sometimes looks like overconfidence and a sense of, I got this, I got life together, I'm in control. I'm not worried because I'm in control. And that's foolish and that is proud, a pride. But worry is also, it has the same roots. At the, at the roots of worry is um, the thought that if I don't got this, And if I can't guarantee that this is all gonna work out and I can't see how this is gonna be for my good, I can't be at peace. See, that's pride too, isn't it? If I can't control this, which we can't, then I can't let that go and be at peace. And worry is pride. And so we humble ourselves actually by casting our cares. And I don't want that to sound simplistic. Uh, And if any of you have seen years ago, there was a show, Mad TV, and there was a skit that Bob Newhart was the guest on and he played a psychologist and he's sitting at a desk and this woman comes in and sits down and it's her first visit and he says, you know, I have some sort of unorthodox practices of, but uh, I just want to say in advance, I'm going to charge you $5 cash. You have to pay that up front, but just $5. We're only going to have one session and you tell me, you know, what's on your mind and your problems and I'll listen and when you're done, um, I'll, I want to say some things to you and I want you to take those things to heart and so he says, so go, what's wrong? And she says, well, I live under this irrational fear of being buried alive. And he says, have you, have you ever been buried alive? No. Has any, do you have anyone in your life that you think might want to bury you alive? 
No. Okay. Hmm. Anything else you want to say? No, that's pretty much it. He goes, okay, well, here's the, the, the words I want to give to you. She said, should I write them down? He goes, no, I think most of my patients usually are able to remember them. They're pretty easy, but you can if you want. He goes, you ready? Stop it! <laughs> stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it! Stop it! And he just keeps saying it. Peter's not saying stop it when he says cast your anxieties on him. Because you just can't do that, right? That's not how fear works. That's not how worry works. We don't just, oh, of course. I didn't thank you for that. Just stop it. No, it doesn't work that way. It's a battle. It's more active than that. It involves our mind and our will and us engaging with God in prayer. And I think this is what it looks like to cast our anxieties on him. It has everything to do with knowing our God. We come to him in prayer and whatever this thing is, maybe it's huge, crushing anxiety, but we bring that to him and we say, God, you tell me in your word and you've shown in this world that you are mighty, all powerful. You do all that you wish and nothing can stop you from doing your will. I trust that. And you are compassionate. You've shown me in the cross that if you're willing to give your own son, that you will certainly graciously give me all other things for my good in Christ. I trust that. And God, I know you know all and you are wise and you have my best interest in mind and I trust that. So God, I cast this on you and I pray that you'd help me have a peace that you got this such that I can be free from worry. And Paul, at one time when he says, cast your anxieties on him, he says, and the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And often we have to do that daily maybe hourly. We don't just do it once. Then we, they, those anxieties tend to slip back off somehow onto ourselves and we have to keep casting them actively. But we don't just stop it. We draw near to God in that way. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning uh, with some anxieties that you walked in here with. So third, quickly, know your company. He says, know that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The reason I think this is encouraging for us to remember and even hear stories of how believers are standing firm in their faith is because it reminds us that God makes good on his promise to help Christians persevere in their faith. One of the other stories at the persecuted church prayer night in, in one of the other rooms was of a 12-year-old girl um, who was in a Muslim family and she came to trust Christ and her father found out about it and locked her in a shed in their back of their property and made her sit on a mat and said, don't you get off that mat and you can't come out and eat or have anything until you renounce Jesus. And for days she stayed into it to the point where she almost died of malnutrition until other people in the neighborhood found out and came and set her free. And our group heard this story and afterward was kind of processing this, going, how in the world is a 12-year-old girl do that. I'm a 44-year-old man, and I'm trying to imagine myself, how many days would it take till I gave and stepped off the carpet, right? And, and all we could come up with, conclude was that 12-year-old girl had an encounter with the risen Christ. She knew him. And that in that moment, the Holy Spirit, who must dwell in her, upheld her faith. And she did something that just makes us go, What? 
And it's an encouragement for me to know those sorts of stories or even less dramatic ones of just God upholding and, and, and reinforcing faith uh, in, in other people's lives in the face of trials because it assures me that, in this, in, that I'm gonna have a shelter in the storms that I walk through and God will be just as faithful and his Holy Spirit will uphold my faith in the same way. Know your brothers around the world are up against the same battle but actually have the same God. And lastly is this, is know your reward. And he said it throughout the whole letter, uh, but it, it is this, he says, in the end, um, after a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself personally restore and establish, confirm and strengthen you. And to him be dominion forever and ever. Um, that even th that those, these difficult graces of God in this present age, sufferings that God has good purposes in, when Jesus comes back and, and sets all things right and makes all things new, including us, there will no longer be need for suffering for any of those reasons. No one will have, have difficult tweets like that, if there's even tweets in heaven, right? Can you go to the last verse of that, Be Still, or Be Still My Soul, Travis? It struck me in the first service as we were singing that, um, that that's what, that, what this is saying. Be still, my soul, uh, the hour is hastening on when we will be forever with the Lord. When disappointment and grief and fears are gone, and then this line, sorrow forgot. Isn't that a great line? Sorrow forgot. It's just been put out of mind because love's purest joys restored. Next slide. Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. In just a little while, Christians, this is what Peter says is coming for us. Let me pray. And even though that clock's bearing down, we're going to sing two songs here to give some expression and prayer in light of this. God, um, help us draw near to you daily to put our armor on by getting you uh, in our minds and our sight. Uh, and then, Holy Spirit, help us to trust in you. Lord, I pray as we do that, the devil would flee, would have no foothold or opportunity to devour our faith. Lord, thank you for, um, thank you for the fact that we don't do this alone for the church and that we're surrounded by uh, evidences of your faithfulness and your, your present uh, active help in times of trouble that encourage us then to seek it as well. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.